Hey everyone, Nate, Veronica, and Lauren here from Foodies Watching Movies. Make sure to tune in every other Wednesday for a podcast that's got tasty food talk and epic movie discussions right here on the Journey Into Comics Network at journeyintocomics.com. Hungry for more? Go to the Journey Into Comics Network Patreon for early access and exclusive content at patreon.com backslash journeyintocomics. Following is a Journey to Comics Network production. From the suburbs of Chicago and Illinois, this is The Poor Report with your host, Andrew Poor. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of The Poor Rapport. I am your host, Andrew Poor, and I want to thank you for joining me here for another In My Profile series, which I am doing covering influential people and people that are currently in the news and just getting a little bit more information about them. And the one for today is actually not one that I even talked about before on this show. It's one that actually came about last Tuesday, which was the day the episode on Barbara Bush dropped. Uh, my fiance Liz and I were attending a book event with Jillian uh, Flynn and Pat Oswalt, and I went mainly because I am a big Pat Oswalt fan. I've always loved to stand up, and I've been following him on Twitter for a number of years now. And I learned that his wife was a true crime writer and has been doing a ton of research about some stuff that's been going on lately. And I apologize for that. My cat said to knock over their food container and over the floor so that's a lot of fun but i digress so on tuesday night there was a book event in naperville illinois which is a suburb of chicago for those of you who don't listen in the states or from illinois or indiana or that lot a lot of people from the network so we were attending this book event and it was about pat oswald's wife michelle namara's book on the golden state killer the golden state killer was a killer who terrorized uh, California over a decade in the 70s, causing uh, numerous... He had something like... I have the information in my article, but something like 50 rapes and 12 murders over the course of his time. And it was kind of a crazy event. There was um, obviously Gillian Flynn, who wrote The Gone Girl and Sharp Objects and a couple of those books in that series, which I really enjoyed reading the... Gone Girl saw the movie. It obviously didn't hold a candle to the book, like all books, but it was a really interesting night. I learned a lot about this killer and the people that were involved in seeing this book, not just Michelle McNamara, but the two researchers that she worked with, who unfortunately I don't remember their names, um, ended up following them on Twitter because it led to a very interesting story that happened just the night after, between Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. Uh, California police may have caught the Golden State Killer based on DNA evidence, and I'll, then I'll get into this all in the article, but going from hearing about a book that I, about a person I knew nothing about by an author that I knew nothing about other than the fact that she was married to Patton Oswalt, and then the tragedy of uh, her death two years ago due to some uh, undiagnosed heart condition and sleep disorder and just the stress of this research that unfortunately left Pat Oswald a widower and left the their daughter without a mother and it just it was 
a tragic story, but that it had a such an interesting ending when you see that like within 24 hours of this event, there was a person in custody that they believe is linked, and there's a lot of information, and then there's going to be a trial and all of this, and it seems like they might finally have justice for all these people, and the research that Michelle McNamara did finally feels validated, and it helped keep the story in the public eye, and I really am just going to jump into the articles now so I can give you really updated information. So uh, first, I have four articles, like I usually do for the Poor Four segment to go through, and um, this is from Rolling Stone. It says, Golden State Killer, Pat Oswald on Michelle McNamara catching a serial killer. Pat Oswald has had an insane two days, but really the insanity began years ago. Uh, Michelle McNamara, his investigative journalist wife, died unexpectedly in 2016, leaving the actor, comedian, a single father, and leaving her life's work unfinished. Then Oswald, along with a couple of McNamara's colleagues, Billy Jensen and Paul Haynes, those were the guys at the event, um, completed I'll Be Gone in the Dark, her gripping, obsessive true crime book about a monster she had dubbed the Golden State Killer. McNamara had faith that the man who was responsible for 12 murders and more than 50 rapes would eventually be brought to justice, and she was convinced that old DNA evidence the crimes took place between 1976 and 1986, coupled with new technology, would play a key role in ending the story. This week, on the very day that an HBO documentary series based on her book began filming, and almost exactly two years to the day of her after her death, um, the HBO documentary was actually kicked off at that book event I was at, so I may be in the background of a... So maybe in the background of an HBO documentary, which is kind of cool. So McNamara m- might have been proved right. The alleged killer, Joseph James D'Angelo, was arrested and charged with two of the murders. And authorities have reportedly linked him to the rest via DNA evidence using information from a commercial online geneolo- genealogy database, according to the New York Times. It was almost exactly as she predicted. As Haynes and Jensen wrote in the book, the idea that the answer to this mystery is probably hiding in the database of a 23andMe and Ancestry.com kept Michelle up at night. Early the morning after the arrest, Oswald's phone began to light up as the news broke. He caught a plane to New York where an appearance on Late Night with Seth Meyers gave the slightly bewildered comic a chance to process some of his emotions and pay tribute to McNamara. Rolling Stone caught up with him just after he landed back home in Los Angeles on Thursday. He was exhausted, slightly jubilant, and a bit stern, sometimes all in the same sentence. An understandable combination of emotions considering the Particularly unusual web he crawled through in 48 hours. And this is kind of some context from the interview. Can you walk me through what your day was like on Wednesday when the news first broke that an arrest had been made? I kind of tweeted it all out Tuesday. I was in Chicago doing a book event which was also being filmed for this HBO documentary. The whole family was there. We talked about the book, talked about the case. Me, Billy Jensen, Paul Haynes, one of us said... Time's running out for this guy. We went to bed around 11, then Wednesday morning around 4 a.m. Tech start pinging in. They caught the guy. It seems real. The rest of the day was airport New York interviews, calling people, answering texts. You can imagine. Before the arrest, did you actually feel like things were closing in? The time was running out for the killer? I didn't feel like things were closing in at all. I was just being hopeful about it. I didn't have any information or intuition about anything. At the press conference announcing Joseph D'Angelo's arrest, a reporter asked whether Michelle's book had anything to do with the case being solved, and the answer from authorities was essentially that no, it hadn't. People on Twitter, including you, feel that it's not entirely true. In your mind, what did Michelle's work do to help bring him to justice? It put way more light and attention on this case. Even though she passed away, there were suddenly news reports about it. 48 Hours did a piece after she passed away, and there was a lot more activity on the message board, so of course it increased attention... I'm not trying to minimize the work of the police and the investigators at all. I know what they 
went through. Michelle was interviewing those guys for years. She knew the decades of frustration, but I certainly think that the book helped. In a Los Angeles Magazine article from 2013 about the case, Michelle wrote that naming these types of killers was important to catching them. Marketing matters, she wrote, and she coined the name Golden State Killer, for a person who had been called a lot of confusing names up until that point. It's important to have an evocative name that lands, rather than a mishmash of acronyms which is going to happen in a case that's this long, and happening in that many jurisdictions where they don't share information. They didn't know these crimes were linked by DNA until the 90s when DNA testing came out. So there are a whole bunch of reasons that end up having the names that he had that were trying to get the East Area Rapist, things going again at the press conference, but it quickly turned into Golden State Killer, because that's what everyone knows him as now. And that's the name Michelle gave him. Did Michelle have any private theories about who the killer might be that she didn't feel comfortable putting in the book? I don't think she was comfortable with theories. She wasn't good going to say a theory unless she had the facts to back it up. She had some wide-ranging ideas of what his profession might be, but as far as a specific person, no, she didn't like to speculate. She wanted facts before she moved. You mentioned a couple times that you might want to meet D'Angelo at some point. I'm certainly not a courageous man. I would just bring the question that she has at the end of her book and just ask him those. If that ever happened, it would happen years down the line. This guy's got to go through trials, but it would be nice to get answers to those questions. I'm not bloodthirsty. I don't want to gloat or gawk at this guy. I'm if an opportunity came up, I would certainly take it just for her sake. I assume this development is going to cha completely change the scope of the HBO documentary. It's a completely different storyline now. We don't know which way it's going to go. We were going to talk about that next week. We have no idea. That was the first day of filming. The day before he got caught, it's going to become very interesting. What, if anything, does your daughter Alice know about all this? I haven't told her yet. I've been traveling, and I don't want to tell her over FaceTime or email. She's nine. I'll probably tell her tomorrow in the afternoon. I'm going to pick her up from school and we'll talk. She knew what Michelle did, but tomorrow I can lay some stuff out. When she's older, much older, she can read the book and see that her mom was kind of a hero. She was the voice for the voiceless. How do you think Michelle would have reacted to the news? I would never insult her by trying to predict what her reaction would be. She was way too complex a person for me to do that. That was one of the reasons I loved her so much. She was so unpredictable. She would have had 50 different emotions every minute. What about you? How would you describe your emotions over the past couple of days? I know that in a couple days, I'll still, I'm still in sleep deprived, numb, exhilarated mode. I honestly don't know. I'll know in a few days. And then it ends with, I'll call you back in a few days then. And then he says, okay, follow up. And that was the Rolling Stone article. And then followed up in the Chicago Tribune. Uh, Golden State Killer case was cold for years. Oak Park native Michelle McNamara kept the story alive. Oak Park native Michelle McNamara researched the Golden State Killer for years. She even wrote a New York Times best-selling book about the man who raped and murdered dozens from 1976 to 1986 in Southern California. I'll be gone in the dark, one woman's obsessive search for the Golden State Killer. This week a suspect was erected in that case, but McNamara wasn't here to see it. The true crime writer died unexpectedly in her sleep in 2016, leaving it to friends and family to celebrate her determination to see what she saw as a solvable case solved. When everyone woke up to the news, we were like, holy shit, said... Kara Bolnick, a Brooklyn resident and friend of McNamara for 32 years. Of course, there's this unanimous feeling that she did this. Oh my gosh, she did this. It's four days after her second anniversary of her death and a week and a half after what would have been her 48th birthday. All this work took them to the place, so there's a lot of pride and some sadness that she's not here to experience that pride and relief and elation, but ultimately, what she did want to happen did happen. What McNamara wanted was for an identification to be made and resolution for the victim and their families. The perpetrator 
was also known as the East Area Rapist and suspected of murders and rapes in 10 counties throughout California while armed and wearing a mask. He would enter through windows at night and surprise sleeping victims who ranged in the age from 13 to 41. Michelle said the guy wasn't a genius. He just practiced a lot. That's what this guy did. Paul Haynes, who collaborated with McNamara on the book, said it in an April 5th episode of My Favorite Murder podcast. Former police officer Joseph James D'Angelo, 72, was taken into custody outside his Sacramento, California home Tuesday and charged with numerous counts of murder. Sacramento County officials said DNA collected from a crime scene of the Golden State Killer was compared to online genetic profiles of genealogical sites to find a match for a suspect. McNamara's husband, comedian Pat Nozzle, was at Anderson Bookshop, Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville on Tuesday with Haynes, lead researcher of I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and Billy Jensen, an investigative journalist who also collaborated on the book. At the time, an arrest had yet to be made. When the news broke, McNamara's sister, Maureen Stratton, said the whole family was ecstatic but so distraught that their, her younger sister was not here to enjoy it. We were in April for the book event, and Haynes and Jensen seemed very confident talking about it like it was just a matter of time that an arrest was going to happen. Stratton, an Oak Park resident and Northwestern University law professor, said, And I remember thinking to myself, they're never going to find him. I did not have that confidence. So it was truly stunning and shocking. I think we all just cried. I think we were all like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Stratton recalled McNamara's writing of the book and the investigation of the case being a sort of push and pull that weighed on her. She just kept thinking, I think we can solve this. I think we can solve this. She just felt so strongly that this was solvable and that it really needed to be solved because all these victims, so it was like her mission to figure it out. Becky Humbert, an April resident and friend of McNamara since seventh grade at Hawthorne Elementary, said she couldn't describe the emotions she felt after hearing the arrest news. Her writing that book, her finishing that, which was always something so important to her, was one thing, but this, this arrest, this was what mattered to her. This was more important to her, Humbert said. She definitely wanted to provide peace for the victims and the survivors. I think I wavered between crying and having chills all day long. I'm sure of all, all of us did. Everyone who loved her and knew her life work well that way. Amid expressing their pride in her work and drive, McNamara's circle reflected on her writing path, from poetry to editor of the Oak Park River Forest High School newspaper to short stories and ultimately true crime writing. Her blog, True Crime Diary, created some after her marriage to Oswald, according to Stratton, focused on hundreds of unsolved crimes, but it was the Golden State Killer that was her most defining case, Haynes said. Ultimately, Michelle's objective was singular, to identify the Golden State Killer, he said. It's so sad that Michelle died without knowing this person's identity. It's so sad that Michelle is not here right now to celebrate this momentous thing, which is really the prize at the end of the maze that Michelle was seeking. Sacramento County Sheriff Scott Jones told reporters that McNamara's work helped build interest in the case. Interest that led to television networks, HLN, and Investigation Discovery doing series about the case. But he didn't go as far as saying her book led to a suspect. Haynes said otherwise. Without Michelle's book and Michelle's involvement, the motivation and thrust to solve this case wouldn't be there. So I would say that Michelle's involvement absolutely had influence on the case being resolved. Uh, Balonic uh, agrees. When you read her book, she was kind of putting pieces together. Nobody knew that it was this particular guy. The cops who have been working on the case for 20 years didn't know, she said. But she had a very close sense of what kind of person they were looking for and how it was going to come about, even through DNA genetic testing. She suspected, she says in the book, that he must be connected to the military somehow, that he must have been in law enforcement. Plus, she named him the Golden State Killer, which allowed all those jurisdictions to come together. That was the umbrella. He wor her work and the ability to talk among all these jurisdictions enabled her to look at information in new ways and ask questions that had never been asked. 
It was a cold case. No one was talking about this case. It had just languished, but she brought attention to it through her blog and through her article and then with her book. It created a sense of urgency that was so crucial, she lived and breathed this. HBO Documentary Films had acquired rights to the book for a docuseries of its own. Haynes said he'll definitely continue following every development in the case as it goes forward. This is only the beginning of a, a new chapter in this case, he said. As the case evolves, McNamara's sister wants people to remember one thing about her brilliant, funny sister. It wasn't about solving the case and getting the glory. She wouldn't care about that at all. She just wanted to put a face and a name to this horror and get some peace for people. I think she was a very selfless person that way. And then followed up with a CNN article, Arrest of Alleged Gold State Killer Brings Wave of Relief to Survivor and Victims' Families. Bruce Harrington constantly pushed California officials to use DNA testing, hoping it would help catch the man who killed his brother and sister-in-law nearly 40 years ago. On Wednesday, police arrested a suspect they believed is behind a series of unsolved killings, rapes, and assaults in the 1970s and 80s, including the deaths of Harrington's family members. Joseph James D'Angelo was charged with capital murder in the 1978 killing of Kate and Brian Maglor. The 17-year-old former police officer is believed to be linked to 12 killings and at least 50 rapes in California. Harrington and dozens of survivors had only known the mysterious killer as the original Night Stalker, East Area Rapist, and the Golden State Killer. Sleep better tonight. He isn't coming through the window. Harrington addressed survivors at a news conference Wednesday. He's now in jail and he's history. And I actually listened to this um, press conference while I was at work. It was definitely very powerful to see the victim's families coming forward and able to talk and have... It wasn't happiness, but it was relief that the horror they went through wouldn't befall someone else. De uh, back to the article. D'Angelo's arrest brought a mix of emotions to survivors and the victim's families. There are a million and one things going through my mind. It's... Really quite overwhelming, Debbie Domingo told HLN's uh, Ashley Banfield. Domingo was a teenager when her mother, Sherry, was killed in 1981 at their Goleta, California home. In recent years, she had become active online and posted YouTube videos calling for answers in her mother's case. Domingo heard that someone was in custody. She said she felt a wave of relief. We just didn't talk about the rape back then. Jane Carson Sander was dozing in bed with her son when she was abruptly woken by a masked man holding a butcher knife in 1976. The man bound and blindfolded them before he moved her son to another room. Then he came back to rape her, she told HLN's Michaela Perriera. The first rape sparked the hunt for the so-called Golden State Killer, but Carson Sandler believes there could be more than that may have not been reported to the police. I think what we didn't have back at the time was the ability to share what happened to us because of shame. We just didn't talk about rape back then. It's so different today, and I just, really, I just hope some of the other women that were raped by him can finally maybe come forward, she added. Harrington praised law enforcement after they revealed they had matched a discarded DNA sample from D'Angelo's home to evidence from the decades-long investigation. At the press conference with police, Harrington said he'd been lobbying to bring DNA testing to the forefront of forensic science in California for years. I began my quest in the mid-90s, the mid it was 15 years until we heard that there was a DNA sample taken from our scene, he said. In the early 2000s, he testified in front of the California Assembly in favor of expanding DNA collection by police and pleading that they would embrace the power of DNA. In 2004, California voters passed Proposition 69, an initiative to collect DNA from people arrested with felonies charged and store it in a state database. What's driving me is a sense of wanting to avenge the death of my brother and his wife, Harrington told the Los Angeles Times before 
the initiative was approved. You're going to survive. Uh, Margaret Wallow was 13 years old when she was raped at her Sacramento home after a man woke her up with a flashlight in her face. My inside voice told me, you're going to be raped, this is what's going to happen to you, and you're going to live through this. You're going to survive, and it was just that simple. She faced him with defiance, and she said, even as she threatened to kill her mother, I just knew I wasn't going to let him have what he came for, and that was to have power over me, by frightening me and making me fear him. Wardle believes she, her courage had got her through the years since the attack. It never defined who I was or who I am today, she told CNN. I never let an evil person interfere with my life, how I want to live it, and I'm very proud to be able to say that. Again, I apologize for the kind of graphic nature of some of these articles, given the nature of the Golden State Killer, and I will put a, I'll put an information in front of the episode so people don't unwillingly go into this. And then uh, to finalize this with an article about from the Washington Post about uh, all we know about Joseph D'Angelo, the Golden State Killer, suspect who became a suburban grandfather. If Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. is the Golden State Killer, as police suggest, then he spent his 30s in a nearly nonstop frenzy of sadistic violence, breaking into a house every few weeks in the late 1970s, raping dozens of women and escalating to serial killings before the crime spree suddenly ended in 1986. And if D'Angelo is the killer, the police say his DNA proves that he is... Then he fit uh, these 45 suspected rapes and 12 suspected murders into an astonishing double life. He was a Vietnam War veteran before a spree, before the spree, a police officer during the spree, and then a husband, father, and grandfather who lived quietly among the same communities that the Golden State Killer had terrorized. D'Angelo lived that life, apparently free of suspicion, until Tuesday when a break in the case led FBI agents and police to arrest a 17-year-old in the Sacramento suburb where he raised a family. Reporters have now begun to piece together the puzzle of D'Angelo's life, how he wore a police uniform by day while the Golden State Killer stalked at night and raised children in the wake of those crimes and blended in Northern California suburbia for decades, appearing to his neighbors a little more than a slightly eccentric old man with a temper. Uh, here's what we know about D'Angelo's wife, uh, life. Sorry, James D'Angelo Jr. Became, believes that without law and order there would be no government, and without a democratic government there can be no freedom, read a 1973 article in the Exeter Sun announcing that 27-year-old Navy veteran had recently joined Exeter's police force. The Foothill Sun-Gazette reportedly the article this week, complete with a photo of young D'Angelo, clean-shaven and light-haired, like the man who would years later appeared in police sketches across the United States. The new officer's bona fides looked good when he came to Exeter, which was in Central California, midway between Sacramento and Los Angeles. D'Angelo had lived in the state since his late teens, according to the Sacramento Bee, raised by a Denny's waitress and a welder. He had served in, as a repairman on the USS Can Canberra in the late 60s during the Vietnam War, according to local newspaper reporters. He lost a finger before leaving the military, one of his neighbors told the Bee. Exeter's current police chief said that he had been unable to find any records of D'Angelo's employment, but newspaper reports from that time show he joined the police force in May of 1973 after obtaining a criminal justice degree from California State University. That November, the rookie officer married Sharon Marie Huddle, the Bee reported. Her brother James Huddle told Auction that the couple raised three daughters before eventually separating. While D'Angelo went about his police work and started a family in Exeter, the town of Asali, about 10 miles away, experienced a rash of strange burglaries and a still unsolved death. Between 1974 and 1976, a man dubbed the Vesalia Ransacker invaded 85 homes and may have killed a college professor. The man had a habit of taking tokens such as jewelry and placed dishes in the home as noise alarms, which would become both trademarks of the Golden State Killers later on. The newspaper reported that 
Vesalia police are now working with other agencies to determine if D'Angelo was the ransacker, and whether, as many have suspected over the years, those break-ins were the warm-up crimes of a future serial killer. No suspicion fell on D'Angelo while he was living in Exeter. However, the, he patrolled there until 1976 when he moved north and took a job with the Auburn Police Department about 35 miles outside of Sacramento. It was in those same Sacramento suburbs the same summer the Gold Stick Killer started to rape women in their homes. By 1979, people in Sacramento County lived in dread of the man they called the East Area Rapist. Among his nearly four dozen victims over the previous three years were a 13-year-old girl, women assaulted while their husbands were tied up in the same house, women who lived just blocks from one another as the rapist terrorized entire neighborhoods week after week. The man was a me as meticulous as he was violent, often casing houses before his assault, studying floor layouts, disabling locks and lights, and hiding weapons. In the rare cases where he was caught in the act, he could jump roofs and vault fences to escape. As police and surrounding suburbs were searching in vain for a break in the case, D'Angelo went about his patrols in Auburn's. He got a prowling teenager attempting a toilet paper, a patrol car in 1978, the Auburn journalist reported. D'Angelo made the newspaper again a few months later after upsetting a resident by having her car towed. Then in the summer of 1979, D'Angelo made the front page repeatedly. Joseph D'Angelo was cited July 21st for allegedly attempting to steal a hammer and a can of dog repellent, the journal wrote in the first of several stories. A clerk like the Pay and Save in Citrus Heights, an inner suburb of Sacramento, had found the items in D'Angelo's pants, then struggled with him. Sheriff's deputies arrived and found the officer tied to a chair. The journal wrote in a subsequent story reportedly in an emotional state. D'Angelo was fired from the police force that August. Two months later, he was found guilty of shoplifting, fined $100, and sentenced to probation. Coincidentally or not, the end of D'Angelo's career in law enforcement was followed by a radical shift in the habits of the East Area Rapist. The rapist abruptly ended his spree around Sacramento near the end of 1979. According to Los Angeles Magazine, he soon reappeared in Southern California where people would call him the original Night Stalker and eventually the Golden State Killer because he stopped leaving his victims alive. It's unclear where D'Angelo lived between the, sum, the winter of 1979 and the summer of 1981 when the Golden State Killer is believed to have committed most of his 12 suspected homicides, still raping women but now also shooting or beating them to death before he left the house and often killing their boyfriends or husbands as well. The final killing took place after a five-year hiatus in 1986 when an 18-year-old woman was raped and bludgeoned in Irvine near Los Angeles, and the Golden State Killer disappeared. By then, the Bee reported D'Angelo had been living for three years in a ranch-style house in Citrus Heist, the same Sacramento suburb where he'd been caught shoplifting. He would spend most of the rest of his life in that city, surrounded by the same community the East Area Rapist had terrorized. D'Angelo took a warehouse job at Save Mart, a grocery store chain, in the late 1980s or early 90s, and worked there for the next 27 years. He was a mechanic, a company uh, spokesman said in a statement to the New York Daily News. None of his actions in the workplace would have led us to suspect any connection to crimes being attributed to him. Jason Calhoun told the Bee that he and D'Angelo had been working together since a warehouse opened in 1989. He was a regular Joe, Calhoun said, even though he never smiled. The company said D'Angelo retired last year in his early 70s. Retirement was something that he'd been looking forward to for a long time. Neighbors in Citrus Heights told the Bee, We plan to do a lot of fishing. His wife does not appear to have lived with him in his later years. A neighbor told the Bee that they were uh, divorced, while a KCRA news reporter said the couple remained technically married, though estranged, but he kept up his family life. His brother-in-law, James Huddle, told Oxygen that D'Angelo was a good father. According to neighbors, a daughter and a granddaughter had been living with him in Citrus Heist until his arrest this week. You can tell he's a very meticulous person, one Citrus Heist neighbor, Kevin 
Tapia said after D'Angelo's rest. His house is always perfectly painted. His grass is always cut. He gets down around the rocks of his lawn and is cutting to make sure it's just perfect. Precision was important to D'Angelo, to the point of having permanent markings on his driveway so he could be exact in parking his boat. In contrast to his tidy home, several neighbors said D'Angelo himself was prone to fits of rage and occasionally disturbing intrusions into their lives. The guy just had this anger that was just pouring out of him. Grant Gorman, who grew up in the house behind D'Angelo, told the bee, He'd just be yelling at nothing in the backyard, pacing in circles. These rages went back decades, Gorman said, to 1994 when D'Angelo left a voicemail threatening to deliver a load of death. The family's dog didn't stop barking. Another neighbor, Eddie Verdon, told the Washington Post that three years ago he heard someone on his property and opened his garage door to find D'Angelo mounting a bicycle to flee. I stared him down and he looked at me nervously. I never really interacted with him again. Maybe it, hasn't, it wasn't such a bad idea. We used to call him Freak, another neighbor uh, told the Bee. He used to have these temper tantrums, usually because he couldn't find his keys. But the portly grandfather had calmed down in the past few years, he said. He wasn't even well-liked by some on the block. Or he was even well-liked by some on the block. Corey Harvey, who lived next door, told the Bee that D'Angelo helped pay to put a fence between their houses and was always apologized when she overheard him cursing. Even though na- neighbors most wary of D'Angelo were stunned by what police now allege, that he was the monster who terrorized California in the 70s and 80s, D'Angelo did not seem to expect the police either. A former, sac- former Sacramento County Sheriff's Office detective who investigated some of the first rapes in the case told the Post that he was never a suspect in those years. D'Angelo had been working in his garage on Tuesday afternoon, there would be reported, building a table according to one neighbor unknown to him, as an as yet unexplained break in the case had caused police to put him under surveillance and secretly acquired a DNA sample that they matched to the rapes and killings. One neighbor saw several calls pull up to D'Angelo's house in the late afternoon, and armored police pour out of them. D'Angelo seemed surprised, the AWP wrote, but surrendered without incident. Deputies reportedly told him he was being charged with multiple murders and told them that he had a roast in the oven. So there you have it. A man that in the twilight of his life, living a relatively normal life, had such a dark CD past, and it he would have probably lived the rest of his life uncaptured if it hadn't been for the work of the police department and the renewed interest by Michelle McNamara in her research and her book. So I really thought that was worth sharing with you guys, and I definitely do apologize for kind of the graphic nature. It's not something I typically talk about on this show, but... When I heard about it on Tuesday, I haven't really stopped thinking about it since. It's just been such a powerful story. And I definitely wanted to share it with you guys. So really that's it for this week. I'm hopefully gonna I'm probably gonna mix up and have a lighthearted episode, maybe talking about Kevin Smith and the recent things of his life post uh, heart attack and maybe keep it a little more lighthearted and kind of mix it up a bit. And if anyone comes up between now and then that's important to talk about, I can always shift and go because that's what i'm doing with this series and we'll see how it shakes out before it ends but then again thanks and have a great week thanks guys